Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 19th, 2019, and this is episode 2474 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it's time for an expert counsel Q&A show. This is where we uh, take your questions for our expert council members. And just a, a, an immediate announcement so I don't forget to do it. Any questions for the council, man? Um, I've got two in the bank right now. I know I've got some questions out. It is piker season, especially for the chronic pikers. <laughs> Chef Keith. Um, anyway, uh, but I need questions. There's guys and gals out there on the council uh, that are not answering questions because they don't have any. So, if you get a question to me right now, it will probably be on the uh, show Friday next week. And when I say right now, I mean right now. Go ahead and do it. Like, if you're listening to this, you probably are on your phone or your tablet or your computer or something like that, and you could fire off a question right now. So think of the expert counsel and something you've wanted to ask them. Shoot an email to me, jack at com. TSPC expert in the subject line. Tell me the name of the expert you want to ask the question of. If you're not sure of their name, but you know kind of who, sort of what they are, describe them. And uh, I know some people have a hard time spelling Bon Pietro, right? Because Derek Bon Pietro answers our mechanic and uh, automotive questions. Uh, if you want to know how to spell Bon Pietro or any of the other expert council members' names, you can go check them out. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, check out the about section. And click on Meet the Expert Council. You'll see all of the great people who are here to answer your questions. And uh, got, like I said, I got a fairly clean slate right now, and I can only push on the the pikers if the pikers are backlogged. And I really got one piker right now, <laughs> Keith. Anyway, with that, what are we going to talk about today? All right, here's what I got. I got a question for old man Bones about being an old man. Yeah, once you're over 60, what are the medical uh, tests and monitoring services you should be using to stay in top health? Uh, next up, we have a question on finding a, a knife that fits your hand right for Patrick Rorman of MT Knives. We have some questions about feeding eggs to your canines and possibly your kitties. That, of course, is going to Doc Kelly. Uh, thoughts on buying a used truck from the man himself, Derek Bon Pietro. It's not that hard to say, Bon Pietro, and it's really spelled exactly that way. If you try it, you'll probably get it right. Next up, all about the Secure Act and annuities with John Pugliano. Um, a couple different people I saw losing their minds about the Secure Act on Facebook. If you're listening, you're going to find out that what I told you on Facebook was true, at least for now. I mean... Well, I'll save my thoughts for this for when John answers this question. Uh, and then I have a question on when is the right time to buy a new house? That's me, Jack. I'll take that one as the anchor. Before we dig into these, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at history. Something really cool happened this week in history, and it just so happens it actually is from this day in history. So as many of you know, I used to do this uh, every day, and I went to doing a weekly history segment. And uh, so I picked something from the week. Right, instead of the specific day. This one does happen to fall on exactly this day. July 19th in 1799, one of the most important discoveries 
in understanding human history and our place in the world happened this day. And guess who was involved? Kind of this conquering general named Bonaparte, yeah, Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, during one of his missions, they found the Rosetta Stone. Some of you that are really young and they don't really teach real history anymore in school, you might think Rosetta Stone is a way that you learn a foreign language. Well, there's a reason that they used that term. The Rosetta Stone was a stone that was found that had Egyptian hieroglyphics on it. So that was actually not really a new thing to find Egyptian hieroglyphics. They had found all kinds of Egyptian hieroglyphics. They just couldn't read them. But there were two other languages on the Rosetta Stone. One is called Egyptian Demotic. This is basically the ancient script language of Egypt. And I think there wasn't really much understanding of that either. Maybe some limited understanding. But there was a third language on the Rosetta Stone, which was Greek. And one of the scientists or archaeologists, or however you want to describe them, that uh, Napoleon took with him on this expedition into Egypt... Uh, knew enough about Greek to be able to decipher the Rosetta Stone. And this is what's led to the fact that we can actually now look at Egyptian hieroglyphs in things like the pyramids and other uh, ruins that are found and pretty much understand what they were saying. Like, what does this stuff mean? Without the Rosetta Stone, it is quite possible that it would be a code that still has yet to be cracked. And there is so much that we know about history, at least from that period of human history, Because they found a stone. Because they found a stone. And it kind of pushes me back to my interview this week with Pete Canaris. And at one point we talked about a lot of the things that I think we're doing with permaculture is not what we're discovering, it's what we're rediscovering. And if one stone can unlock that much, I wonder how many things are left out there to be discovered. You know, I've talked about the fact that when I was a little kid, one of the things I, wanted, I dreamed about being when I grew up was being an astronaut. Something tells me that maybe what some kids need to be dreaming about today is being an archaeologist. Uh, and you're not going to go out and really be Indiana Jones for sure, but I think the uh, the adventure and the discovery is pretty amazing, and I think there's so much left to be discovered. That's why we talk about history once in a while. Not just for context, so we understand the stupidity that's in front of us. Um, sometimes we talk about history so we can understand the brilliance that's behind us. With that, let's go ahead and dig on into it. We have a question here for old Doc Bones about being an old man and needing to be tested. I, I want to tell you guys something, right? I bust on Bones about being old. It's only because he, he does it to himself all the time. It's his thing, right? So I'm just encouraging his thing, right? Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Bones is crested the, uh, the 60 mark, and he is a medical doctor, so he'd be the guy to ask. So we have a question about exactly that. Once you've, uh, once you've topped that mark of 60... What should you make sure you're having uh, checked for on an ongoing basis? Old man, what's up? Hey, TSP. Today our question comes from Mike in Kentucky. And Mike is asking about the SECURE Act, which is currently going through the legislative process. And, and Mike says, I was reading online about the SECURE Act. And one of the problems with the bill is that annuities can be sold inside of a 401k. What is your opinion of annuities? Okay, well, Mike, I'll give you my opinion on annuities uh, real quick here. I do want to mention that the SECURE Act currently is being held up in the Senate. It has passed the House, and we'll have to see exactly what the bill encompasses once it's totally passed. But in terms of the one provision that Mike mentions about allowing annuities within 401k plans, 
Well, Mike doesn't have that part exactly correct, you see, because there's really no legislation that prevents an annuity from being held within a retirement account like a 401k or even like an IRA or a Roth. But what this new legislation will do is that it will remove liability from companies that offer annuities within their 401k plan. You see, previously, although annuities were allowed to be included within 401k plans, most companies shied away from offering them because they didn't want to have any liability if the underwriting insurance company that was providing the annuity went out of business in the future. And so it's likely now that since employers will not be held responsible, you'll see a lot more annuities offered within 401k plans. And really, it's not so much that they're in the 401k plan, but it's going to give employees that are about to retire the opportunity to easily and more conveniently roll the money that's in their 401k into an annuity that will guarantee the retiring employee a fixed income. And this is kind of funny because it's really the evolution of what companies used to offer when they had defined benefit retirement programs, and then we got away from those because they were too expensive, and we went to the 401k structure where the employees are responsible for investing their money themselves, and now that's evolved full stream back to where the laws are being set up to encourage the employees to take the money that they save while they've been employed and to purchase for themselves an annuity that will provide them an income stream into retirement rather than having to rely on their own individual investment decisions. So that's what's going on with the SECURE Act. Now, as far as Mike's question on my opinion of annuities in general, well, let me say this. I'm generally not a fan of annuities, but my objection to annuities generally doesn't have to do with the investing feature of it. It's the way they're sold. Listen, there are a wide array of annuities. Some of them are incredibly complex. You have everything from variable annuities to fixed annuities to immediate annuities to, to deferred income annuities and annuities with or without survivor benefits. I mean, annuities are not just one thing. They can be relatively simple or they can be extremely complex. And so what I would say is, is that if a, a salesman is trying to sell you an annuity, you need to make sure you really understand what the benefits are, what the fees are, and all the provisions associated with it. And since in most cases you're going to be dealing with a salesman rather than an investment advisor that's acting as your fiduciary, the salesman is going to gloss over any of the negatives within the annuity, and they're only going to emphasize the features that they think are most beneficial to you. For example, when it comes to variable annuities, you'll often hear the annuity salesman tell you that you can't lose any money because your principal is guaranteed. Well, that may be true, but likely what they're not telling you is that although your principal was guaranteed, your previously earned capital gains are not guaranteed. And although your losses may be capped, conversely, your earnings in any particular time period, like a, over a quarter or a particular month or a year, those earnings could also be capped. Now, there's nothing wrong or nefarious with that. Obviously, if the annuity company is going to protect your principal in a declining market, then they somehow have to make up and compensate for the payout that you're going to receive when the market goes up. Otherwise, the annuity company would never make any money. And we know they're not doing this as a charitable enterprise. They're doing it to earn a profit. Now, I'll give you another example of a typical sales pitch. And this is something that I know happens all the time. And I was just recently talking to someone that said it's exactly the same sales pitch that they had recently received from an annuity salesman. Now, follow along with me on this. Here's the way the sales pitch goes. 
You have a guy, we're going to call him Fred. He's about to retire. He's white. He's 65 years old. And he has $500,000 in his retirement savings. The annuity salesman comes to him and says, Fred, I've got such a deal for you. I have an annuity that will pay you $30,000 for the rest of your life. Now, that's guaranteed, Fred. And if you've been paying attention, you know that in the low interest rate environment we're in, this is a far better guaranteed rate of return than you're going to receive anywhere. In fact, Fred, let's pull up some interest rates from a secure investment. Like if you were to ladder CD, certificate of deposits at your bank or at your credit union, where you know that the principal was guaranteed. Well, let's look at the numbers, Fred. Well, at best, you're going to receive a 3% return on your $500,000. And Fred, that's only $15,000. And then he'll show Fred that... If Fred purchases this annuity, he's going to receive $30,000 a year, and you can do the simple math. Well, that turns out to a 6% rate of return. And so, hey, Fred, this is a great deal. It's guaranteed for the rest of your life. Sign right here on the dotted line. Well, what the annuity salesman just told Fred was absolutely true, but it's what he didn't tell Fred that's important. And what he didn't tell Fred is that if Fred took his $500,000 and just took it down to the credit union or the bank, Fred could ladder his CDs and just receive that 3% rate of return. And although that 3% wouldn't pay the $30,000 that the annuity would, Fred could still withdraw from his own account the $30,000 and pay that to himself every year. Now you're going to say, well, he could do that, but he's only getting a 3% rate of return. That's only $15,000 when he starts. As he keeps withdrawing down his principal, Fred is going to eventually run out of money. And that's absolutely true. But do the math on it. If Fred has $500,000 and he's paying himself $30,000 a year, he's not going to run out of money for about 23 years. Now remember, in our example, Fred is a 65-year-old white male. And so that means that he won't run out of money until he's 88 years old. The reason that's so important and the reason I stress the demographics of being a white male is that the actuarial tables say that Fred's life expectancy is only going to be about 80 or 81 years old. And so unless Fred is a real outlier from his overall demographic, Fred will die before he ever goes broke. And that's the key point to this discussion that the annuity salesman doesn't bring up to Fred because the annuity company knows that Fred's probably going to die at 80 or 81 years old. That's why they're willing to pay him $30,000 a year because the break-even point doesn't occur until Fred's 88 years old. That's how the insurance or the annuity company makes their profits. Now, again, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing nefarious with this. But Fred should know that if he buys that annuity... Under those conditions, he really needs to live beyond 88 years old just to break even. And if Fred knew that, he may be less willing to hand over the control of his half a million dollars to an insurance company, and he may decide to manage that money himself or hire another professional to do it for him. So that's the kind of problem that I have with annuities. It's not that the investment opportunities in and of themselves are bad. It's just that in most cases, they're being sold with high-pressure sales tactics that gloss over on the cons or the negative parts of the annuities. Well, hey, Mike, thanks for your question. For the Expert Council, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a 1,000 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness for any disaster. 
Today's question for the expert counsel is from Len in Australia, who writes, A question about managing one's health. My wife and I are in our 60s in good health with no requirement for medication. We see the doctor annually for a checkup with blood tests. We'd like to take a more active interest in monitoring our aging process while we're still in good shape. What do you suggest are areas that we should keep an eye on? Also, what tests do you feel provide the most insight? Cholesterol, stress tests, etc. Best wishes, Len. P.S. We live in the surveillance state of Australia and are compensated with free, to a point, health care. Our leaders don't tweet much, but they are good at slogans. Len, I think it's great that neither of you are in need of the regular medications that many of us need in our 60s. I think few of us can say that here. Still, you're wise to want to monitor your health. Staying mentally and physically active in your 60s can help keep you well. Everybody ages differently, and lifestyle plays an important role, certainly, but so does Father Time. The United States Preventive Services Task Force and a number of medical specialty groups have assembled the following suggestions to help keep seniors well. These are simple medical tests and would be, well, pretty useful to gauge your health. Blood pressure. Millions of people in the United States have elevated blood pressure. I think that regular blood pressure readings will give you a good idea of the strain that's being placed on your arteries, your heart, your brain, your kidneys, and more. I have a home device, and both Amy and I check our results regularly. Your BP reading, according to the American Heart Association, should be 130 over 80 or less. New standards that are more strict than previously issued because it apparently decreases your risk of stroke. Weigh yourself. As you get older, muscle is replaced by fat. That usually ends up, guess where, on your waist. You also don't burn calories like you did when you were younger. Try to maintain a normal weight for your height and age. Colorectal cancer screening. Well, you're now in the age group at higher risk for colon cancer. Some type of screening should be performed until about the age of 75. Colonoscopy is the gold standard, but there are new less invasive screens like Cologuard on the market. Talk to your doctor. For men, prostate cancer screening may be appropriate. When you hit 80, there's at least a 50% chance that you have some abnormality precancerous or cancerous of the prostate. There's a blood test called the PSA, which identifies those at high risk. Some doctors aren't as keen to perform this test regularly, but I don't see the downside myself. Of course, in countries where health care is nationalized, the cost may be a factor in the decision-making. For women, a breast exam and mammogram are indicated at this age group. Breast cancer risk increases with age, and although not everybody agrees, a mammogram is recommended every one to two years, starting at age 40 or 50. Also for women, a pelvic examination, maybe a pap smear, HPV test, every few years is not a bad idea. This has become more controversial in recent years, but older women are at more risk for some GYN cancers, especially ovarian cancers. The average age for that is about age 60. Let's talk about your eyes. Eye diseases such as cataracts, glaucoma, and macular degeneration are common after age 60. Screening can preserve and maximize your vision. Also hearing, at least 25% of people aged 65 to 74 have disabling hearing loss, some of which is indeed treatable. Get a hearing test if you're having any trouble hearing. Protect your bones. Osteoporosis is no joke, especially for women. If you have it and you wind up with a hip fracture, say, you've significantly decreased your chances of surviving more than the next year. You may have permanent disability. This is important, so bone density tests can give you an idea of how much at risk you are. 
Cholesterol screening. High cholesterol levels are a major reason why people have heart attacks and strokes. Knowing your numbers can give you an idea if you should consider cholesterol-lowering drugs like statins and or dietary changes. These medications, like every drug, do have side effects in some, but they can decrease the risk of death from heart attacks and other catastrophic events. Vaccinations. Oh, boy. You may not be in favor of vaccinations, but people older than 65 should get a pneumococcal vaccine to protect against pneumonia. Pneumonia, remember, is called the old man's friend because it helps them end their suffering. In other words, it kills them. The CDC also recommends a shingles vaccine for those over age 50 as well. Check your blood sugar. Diabetes is potentially life-threatening, but it doesn't have to be. The American Diabetes Association recommends a fasting blood sugar test be done every three years at least so you can catch diabetes early and manage it. Thyroid hormone tests, that's another issue. Problems with the thyroid can cause hair loss, weight gain, or weight loss, fatigue, and depression, things that you may also see with advancing age. Some organizations, like the American Thyroid Association, recommend screening at least once every five years, especially for women. Keep a close eye on your skin. Most skin cancers develop decades after peak exposure, so you may wind up with it even if you spend most of your time indoors these days. Ask your doctor to check your skin if you have any unusual moles or skin changes. And a dental exam. A dental exam is absolutely important. Gum disease can be an important indicator of your overall health. Your teeth, gums, mouth, throat need to be regularly examined by a dentist. Consider using an electric toothbrush. It helps with cleaning and prevention of gum disease, which can increase the risk of, believe it or not, heart attack. Well, wow, that is a lot. But in the old days, we didn't always reach this age because we didn't have ways to check these issues. Consider talking with your physician to see what tests would actually make sense for you. This is Joe Alton and D, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget to check out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net, as well as our award-winning Survival Medicine Handbooks, 3rd Edition, and Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, our latest book, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. You'll be glad you did. Oh, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a special discount off anything in our store. Next up, we have a question for Patrick Rorman of MT Knives on sizing a knife for your hand. Hey, TSP. This is Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Today's expert counsel, counsel question comes from Andrew. Andrew says, uh, what is the best way to size a knife for your hand? I generally have a hard time finding knives that I've found comfortable to hold. It doesn't help that my knife skills are poor to mediocre at best. I like to find something for daily general use around the homestead that I can handle and be confident in using. One of the issues I've had had in choosing is getting something that has a handle that fits properly in my hand. Most knives I've grabbed have felt small and occasionally dangerous as I've, as I've attempted to use them. I'm overly familiar with custom order items wearing XXL gloves that can be tricky to find. I was curious if my general feeling here may have something to do with it, <clears throat> and if so, what should I be looking for in a knife that would be comfortable to use? Anything in particular I should be asking for if I go the custom route? Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for the question, Andrew. I can understand your frustration. 
uh, I've ordered a couple of knives online and when they got to me, realized they were not the size that I thought they were. So it can be difficult finding something that fits you. And the one downfall to buying something online is, is not being able to handle, handle it and see how comfortable it is. So that leaves you with trying to order something custom, which is difficult for the maker, especially if there's a, a good distance between you and the maker. It's best to stay, to stick with some general shaped handles and not get into something that has finger grooves or um, choils and things like that, that really limit it, limits the user to having a, a certain size hand. Um, and then if you're going to get something custom built, you can always talk to the maker about building you a prototype. There's uh, always 3D printing or even just making a scale model out of some wood or some other material. It may be a little more time intensive. It may cost a little bit more, but that's better than to end up with a knife that you're not happy with in a custom knife that you can't send back. So that's just a few ideas on if you're going to go the custom route, how to end up with something that you know that you're going to be happy with in the long run. So thanks for the question, Andrew. I hope you find something that uh, fits you. This has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Have a great weekend. Next up, I've got a question for Doc Kelly, our veterinarian, on feeding eggs to your dogs and or your cats uh, in two totally different ways. Doc Kelly, take it away. Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. Dr. Kelly here to answer all your furry pet questions. Today we have two questions on dogs and cats eating eggs. The first question is from Michael in Texas. How many eggs can you feed your dog in a given day? My grandmother used to give the dogs an egg once a week to keep their coat shiny. I fed my pug one quail egg a day for a while, but she's pregnant now and I don't want to overdo it. Is this a thing? Yes, Michael, you certainly can overdo it on the eggs if you're giving them frequently. It really comes down to calories, though, so it's good that these are quail eggs and not regular chicken eggs. If you consider that, for math's sake, your average pug weighing 20 pounds, eating one quail egg each day, is like a human on a 2,000-calorie-a-day diet eating about six quail eggs a day. So now if your dog is eating a commercially produced balanced diet in an appropriate ration, then that food is designed to provide all the nutrients that your dog needs. So if you start subbing in some other food source, they are either going to gain weight or potentially not get all the nutrients they need in appropriate amounts. Now, do I give my dog human food treats that aren't exactly on his diet dog food plan? Sure, occasionally. But I don't make a habit of giving calorically dense things daily, since Peter the dog would let himself look like Jabba the Hutt if I gave him half a chance. So the other consideration for, for your dog would be that if given raw, there's also a small chance of salmonella or other types of infection. And while the risk is low, it certainly could be more detrimental to her or the puppies since she's pregnant right now. Um, so I'd recommend cooking them if you decide to offer them occasionally. And I know Jack had a bad incident with cooked eggs, but most dogs should be able to tolerate them totally fine. Um, now for our second question, can wazing withdrawal period chicken eggs go into fuzzy animals without hurting them? 20% of our flock had vent gleat, and instead of paying for a fecal f uh, float test, we just tried wazing 17 because of the likelihood of roundworm. 
well, now I don't want to throw these eggs away and I don't want to compost them and kill any beneficials in the compost jungle either. Would they be safe for a fixed male barn cat or a toy poodle? Thanks in advance, Jim. So for anyone unfamiliar with wazine, it is piperazine and doesn't actually kill the worms. It just anesthetizes them so they let go of the intestines and the bird can expel them before the worm wakes up, basically. Now, the label in the U.S. says don't use in laying hens. However, it is frequently used. Um, only one study has been done to see how long it remained in the eggs after administering the medication. And residues were found up to 17 days later in varying amounts. Now, in Canada and Australia, if you use this medication, there is no waiting period before using the eggs if given according to the label. But from what I could find, the, la the label for these locations recommends lower dosing. So bottom line, can the dog or cat eat them? Piperazine is approved for use in both cats and dogs. So to me, the biggest downsides of them eating these eggs would be the following things. I mean, the first is they could potentially have an allergic reaction to the medication. It's rare, but it's possible. Um, number two, if they ate a whole lot of the eggs every day, there's a theoretical chance of getting to toxic levels. Since it's a not a medication that is administered daily, um, it's usually a once and then maybe repeat in a couple weeks kind of thing. Um, where dogs usually have toxicity issues with this, though, is after eating the horse version of the drug in a large quantity, like they got into it and ate way too much. Now, the third thing, if they're getting just small amounts and not an actual therapeutic dose, they could cause resistance in any worms they may have. Although, so even though this is approved, it's rarely used in small animal deworming, like if you went to the vet, so it may not be a huge issue. Um, and the fourth and last thing would be that it really goes back to those calorie amounts. Um, for a cat or toy poodle, which for a big cat and a small dog is about the same size, one chicken egg is a third of their daily calories. So that's like a human eating eight chicken eggs every day. Um, so if they're getting a lot of these, their diet is getting pretty unbalanced. And uh, now a small size makes it, their small size makes it way easier to throw off the nutrient balance than say a big lab or a Pyrenees that's hanging out, you know, guardian dog, those big guys, you just don't, you're not going to throw things out of whack as easily. So the occasional egg that has wazing is probably not a huge deal, um, but I wouldn't start subbing it into all their food just to use them up. And I personally think it's a small chance of something going wrong if you did feed them other than the calorie amounts, um, but it does just take one animal having a problem to negate any savings by using those eggs if you end up with a big vet bill. So you kind of have to decide for yourself how you want to manage that, but like I said, it's probably not a huge deal. Um, remember, everyone, while I am a veterinarian, I'm not your veterinarian, so my advice is just intended to give you a ballpark estimate for what your veterinarian may recommend. Um, send more questions to Jack for me, and thanks, Jack, and have a great weekend, everybody. You know, on the uh, the wormer, I really don't know. Um, I just take Doc Kelly's advice on kind of can you feed your dog in general too many eggs. I'm going to tell you that... I think you'd have to feed them a lot of eggs. And I think it's less about how many eggs they eat and more about what percentage of the diet would be made up by eggs. I think if you broke a egg onto the top of your dog's food every day, because I have, it wouldn't do much. I do agree with Kelly, though, on the concept of the size of the dog mattering. Uh, our smallest dog is 67 pounds. Uh, that's Lucy Lou. Charlie's a bit over 100, Max is 150. You know, what percentage, if, if and, I, and I throw quail eggs to Charlie whole and let him eat the shell and everything, what percentage of his diet is made up if he eats six quail eggs a day? Less than 5%.
You know, uh, it, it, it really is. So I, I do think that, you know, anything can be done to excess. And I, I think one of the reasons that our dogs are so healthy is because their, their diet is so varied. Uh, you know, they catch and kill rabbits and, and rats and stuff like that all the time. Um, you know, I'm not one of these people that, that says, you know, dogs shouldn't have people food. What exactly is people food? You know, I don't think dogs should have the food that people eat that people shouldn't eat. Right, like cake and cookies and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, dogs really should be, in my opinion, and, and, and Kelly may differ a little bit. She's talked about following nutritional guidelines with uh, prepared dog food and stuff like that. But to me, a dog's diet should be mostly meat. Uh, it should be from something that had a face. Because the canines in, in, in the world that are not domesticated, where all our canines come from, from one route or another through genetics, um, come from animals that kill stuff or scavenge stuff and eat it. That's what they eat. Uh, dogs in the wild do not eat carrots. Right? I mean, I've had a vet, you sit all there, well, when he wants a tree, give him a carrot. Like, where, pray tell, in, in, in the natural world, would a wolf obtain a carrot? And, and <laughs> um, Now, I do think that dogs and canines in the wild get a lot of vegetative matter from eating small animals. Most small animals are herbivores. So if you eat something, you're eating and you eat it whole the way a dog does a rat or a mouse or something, you're also consuming the contents of the stomach. So I'm not opposed to vegetative matter for animals, uh, for dogs. You'll see them eat. But I, I do think if you're, if you're basing the majority of your dog's diet with stuff that had a face, you're probably well off. But what we... What happens when we go to a single, like, oh, I'm going to feed them eggs, right? And that's what the dog's going to eat. Okay, well, see, when a dog is out in nature, if it finds a nest, it will raid eggs. It'll, it'll absolutely do it. But it'll also eat something like a mouse or a rat or a rabbit or something like that. Well, when it eats that, what's it eating? It's eating skin. It's eating fur. It's eating the contents of that animal's stomach. It's eating intestines. It's eating bone. So it's eating marrow. And it's eating meat, and it's eating fat, and it's going to probably smaller creatures. It's going to eat everything, including the head. You know, cats bring you a head. Like here, look what I brought to you, Daddy. Uh, dogs don't. They just eat it. So they're eating even the brain, which is mostly fat, right? So we do need to understand that if we think, oh, we're so smart, and we're going to like feed our dog just ground meat, that that is not natural either. And I do feed my dogs commercial dog food. They just get all these other things as well. So that's kind of my view on that. And I don't really worry too much about the quantity of eggs, but they don't get that many. As to the cooked eggs, we fed our animals cooked eggs. That generally doesn't cause a problem if you basically make a dog egg scramble, okay? Um, my experience in feeding them hard-boiled eggs is don't do it. Unless you want to hate your life. You're either going to get sulfur bomb dog farts or the next step. And which one you're going to get? I don't know. You're rolling the dog duty dice. I don't want to do that. I don't suggest you do either. Let's take the next. Again, cooking them fine, but that's cracking them and kind of scrambling them up for them. All right, next up, uh, we're going to talk about buying a used truck with Derek Bonpietro. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a question regarding buying a newer high-mileage pickup. 
needing to replace my current pickup, but the cost of used trucks is crazy. Wondering if buying something close to 100,000 miles is worth the savings. Wanting to buy an F-150 4x4 with a 5-liter, currently drive about eight to 9,000 miles a year. Well, that's not a whole lot of mileage, so getting something with over 100K, you still get a lot of usage out of it. Now, buying something brand new, you're going to typically get a 36 or 60,000-mile powertrain warranty. Uh, you're also going to get coverage on things like corrosion for 10 years, rusting through, and things like that. You're also going to typically get about 100,000 miles on all of the emissions components, like catalytic converters and whatnot. But as the vehicle ages... Typically, after two to three years, those vehicles start to come back from lease or get traded in, and the manufacturer will do a certified pre-owned vehicle. So what this means is you're typically going to get 100,000 miles coverage on the entire vehicle, bumper to bumper. So you're going to get a better warranty than brand new, and you're typically going to save a few thousand dollars in trade for getting a truck that's a few years old with maybe 20 to 30,000 miles, roughly. Now, those vehicles are going to be purchased from the manufacturer, so you're going to buy it off of a Ford dealership lot. They go through a pretty intense certification program, so that means that any kind of collisions or neglect for maintenance, things like that, they get kicked to the curb, and they'll get wholesaled off a lot. Now, when you're buying a vehicle with thirty to 100,000 miles, you're either going to get them on a used car lot, which range from those rejects that might have had just a couple of little scratches that put it over the top for, for getting a certified pre-owned, all the way to the junk that you don't want to touch, major collisions, things like that. So used car lots are kind of hit or miss. you got to do your due diligence. You're also going to be in the range of buying one from a private party sale. So, <clears throat> again, the nice thing is you can meet the owner. You can see their maintenance records, things like that, where you might not see that buying it from used car lots. So it's kind of hit or miss which one you want to go with. Typically, anything over 100,000 miles is going to be private party at that point. So let's run down really quickly the F-150 and get some numbers on this. Now, you were interested in a 5-liter. Seems to be pretty good. First couple of model years had a couple of engine issues with making knocking noises, having some excessive wear on the cylinder bore, and there was also some coolant leak issues, but nothing crazy. So the 5-liter seems like a really great contender. Definitely stay away from the 5.4 and the 4.6 of previous generations. It seems to be hands down the 5-liter is a way better engine than those. Um, I also have a 3.5-liter EcoBoost crew cab four-wheel drive, and I will say that the truck does not lack power and gets pretty decent fuel economy, so I'd probably look at that one as well. Another thing to look at on these vehicles is rust in the wheel well. It seems like the vehicles will get bubbling and rust on the bed, and they usually don't fall under the factory warranty. So even though they have a 10-year corrosion warranty, it only covers if it rots through, which means that the thing's probably been following a salt truck its entire life. So you, you get stuck in the middle there of it having rust, but then not being covered under that warranty. So those are certain things to look at. They also have a transmission recall for downshifting in the first gear on the highway. Um, but again, like these are all little things. Overall, really great vehicle. And if I had to buy a half-ton truck, I think the F-150 is a really good contender. Another thing I would be looking for is that when you're looking at these F-150s, they tend to sneak in some really high trim and even crew cab models with the much smaller engines, the 2.7 Eco and the non-turbo V6. I'd stay away from these, not only from the power output, but if you try to go to sell it, they're not as desirable. So I would shoot for the 5-liter or the bigger 3.5-liter EcoBoost myself. Now, brand new, I ran some numbers in my area. I'm looking at an XLT crew four-wheel drive with a V8. Final price hovering in the thirty-seven dollars to $39,000 range after all the rebates. Not bad for what you're getting. 
Um, but you're also buying it at the top of the depreciation curve. So, I mean, honestly, in my opinion, uh, I would never be purchasing a truck for that kind of money unless I had a business where there were certain tax advantages for personal use. I just don't, I don't buy it. Now that same particular vehicle, a few years older, certified pre-owned, you're going to hover in the 28 to $33,000 range. So you can see that you knock a few thousand dollars off the price. It's got a couple thousand miles on it, no big deal, and you're going to get a bigger warranty than the factory brand new vehicle. So I think if you had to buy something that was quote-unquote new or newer, I'd be looking at the certified pre-owned. Now, just for comparisons, let's take a look at the used one. And that one comes up in the twelve dollars to $15,000 range for a private party sale. That's typically going to be 100,000 miles, and that's the same trim level. All of these are XLTs. So you're talking half the price. And honestly, I mean, that vehicle's got at least another 100,000-plus miles on it. Biggest thing I'd be looking at is making sure that this thing does not have any major rust underneath it. So that means traveling to a different area of the country. I personally would do it because that's going to eat the vehicle away faster than anything else. So... Uh, I think you'd be better off buying a used one with over 100,000 miles because I agree the price points on these things are just through the roof for, for what the value is. I mean, this is a vehicle, it's a liability, it's a payment, or it's a large amount of money just sitting in your driveway. I personally wouldn't justify spending almost $40,000 on it, but I think if you were going to buy one, certified pre-owned is definitely the way to go. Check out AffordableDCGenerators.com. There's a link to the YouTube channel that I'm getting going, so I'm going to be adding videos every couple of weeks here and there, not only on the affordable DC generator, but then also about batteries and inverters and conventional generators and generator maintenance, things like that. So be sure to check them out, subscribe to it, and obviously the more interest, we'll keep going and adding more. So check out that channel. Thanks for the question. We'll catch you next time. So this is next one that comes up here. This is for John Pugliano, and it's on the SECURE Act as a base and then on annuities as a whole. And John does a great job on the annuities. I want to address something about the SECURE Act because it's making the rounds with the usual suspects that everything's a conspiracy theory, uh, the government's out to kill you, uh, not that they won't, but I just don't think everything the government does is designed to kill you uh, or to steal from Well, it is all designed to steal from you. But not everything is so nefarious that it needs to be looked at through the lens of they're out to get me. Okay, And this is one of them. So what I saw quite a few people parroting uh, from Random Rags publishing this was the Secure Act was designed to force your money into an annuity and screw you over and to pad the coffers of people that sell annuities. I think the last one is true. The first two is ridiculous. Um, so what the Secure Act looks like it's going to say, and like John said, you can never really judge legislation until at least it's close to the point of being a vote and reconciled between the House and the Senate. Because um, you never know what's going to get added, what amendments are going to go in there, etc. But it looks like what they're going to say is that 401k providers must allow an annuity option. Now, that would probably only really take effect once the party that owned the 401k began withdrawal, all right? Now, I'm going to not talk about annuities at all because John is going to do a good job explaining the good, the bad, and the really, really freaking ugly of annuities, okay? But annuities are a thing. And right now, and what John will explain, and this is one thing I'll need to explain to explain why the other part comes next, what the reason employers don't like to put annuities into 401ks 
is since an annuity promises you a fixed income for the rest of your life based on a lump sum investment, if the company providing that annuity goes bankrupt, you can lose. Okay? Uh, these are usually provided by insurance companies. And, and in general, you don't hear about people's annuities getting wiped out. They are probably the most heavily regulated financial instrument on the planet, and probably the most heavily regulated companies that exist are insurance companies. Um, it, it, it just, I'm not saying it can't happen. It just doesn't happen with any regularity. And that has a lot to do with, well, who are you getting your annuities from? If you're getting your annuity through a company that's been providing annuities for 150 years, it's probably not going to go bankrupt tomorrow. And if it does, it probably wouldn't matter if you had all your money in cash anyway because the dollar's probably extinguished. Like That's the kind of financial catastrophe it takes to stamp out some of these long-term companies. But right now, there's that's the only thing. So what the SECURE Act would do is not only say, hey, you got to put this in there if it ends up saying that, but if you do, we won't go after you if the annuity company you pick fails. This is why this is all irrelevant. You are an idiot if you retire, which means you're no longer working for a company, and you decide to leave your retirement in a 401k as you're taking withdrawals and then thereby limit yourself to what you can do. Because your 401k is going to have, what, five to eight funds? And then maybe now they'll add an annuity. Oh, right. That when you withdraw, you can have a guaranteed fixed income. So what does anybody with half a brain do once they retire, which means they don't work for company XYZ anymore, and they go into their retirement and they decide they want to start withdrawing from their retirement account at no penalty and no pain and no suffering and no real cost, they roll their 401k into the equivalent IRA. So if they had a conventional, they do a conventional IRA. If they had a Roth, they go to a Roth. The reason you do this is because now you have complete freedom as to what you select and how you withdraw your money. So anybody that wanted an annuity anyway that was at retirement age, which is when you would do this thing, would, would do that. Because you have to take the money out. You've got to be in retirement age anyway. Now, I'm not saying you should do an annuity, And but there might be a place for it. There might be a hybrid approach. But when we run the math, a lot of times annuities do not make sense. For more on that and for more on the SECURE Act itself, um, I give you John Pugliano. Hey, TSP. Today our question comes from Mike in Kentucky. And Mike is asking about the SECURE Act, which is currently going through the legislative process. And, and Mike says, I was reading online about the SECURE Act. And one of the problems with the bill is that annuities can be sold inside of a 401k. What is your opinion of annuities? Okay, well, Mike, I'll give you my opinion on annuities uh, real quick here. I do want to mention that the SECURE Act currently is being held up in the Senate. It has passed the House. And we'll have to see exactly what the bill encompasses once it's totally passed. But in terms of the one provision that Mike mentions about allowing annuities within 401k plans... Well, Mike doesn't have that part exactly correct, you see, because there's really no legislation that prevents an annuity from being held within a retirement account like a 401k or even like an IRA or a Roth. But what this new legislation will do is that it will remove liability from companies 
that offer annuities within their 401k plan. You see, previously, although annuities were allowed to be included within 401k plans, most companies shied away from offering them because they didn't want to have any liability if the underwriting insurance company that was providing the annuity went out of business in the future. And so it's likely now that since employers will not be held responsible, you'll see a lot more annuities offered within 401k plans. And really, it's not so much that they're in the 401k plan, but it's going to give employees that are about to retire the opportunity to easily and more conveniently roll the money that's in their 401k into an annuity that will guarantee the retiring employee a fixed income. And this is kind of funny because it's really the evolution of what companies used to offer when they had defined benefit retirement programs, and then we got away from those because they were too expensive, and we went to the 401k structure where the employees are responsible for investing their money themselves, and now that's evolved full stream back to where the laws are being set up to encourage the employees to take the money that they save while they've been employed and to purchase for themselves an annuity that will provide them an income stream into retirement rather than having to rely on their own individual investment decisions. So that's what's going on with the SECURE Act. Now, as far as Mike's question on my opinion of annuities in general, well, let me say this. I'm generally not a fan of annuities, but my objection to annuities generally doesn't have to do with the investing feature of it. It's the way they're sold. Listen, there are a wide array of annuities. Some of them are incredibly complex. You have everything from variable annuities to fixed annuities to immediate annuities to to deferred income annuities and annuities with or without survivor benefits. I mean, annuities are not just one thing. They can be relatively simple or they can be extremely complex. And so what I would say is, is that if a, a salesman is trying to sell you an annuity, you need to make sure you really understand what the benefits are, what the fees are, and all the provisions associated with it. And since in most cases you're going to be dealing with a salesman rather than an investment advisor that's acting as your fiduciary, the salesman is going to gloss over any of the negatives within the annuity, and they're only going to emphasize the features that they think are most beneficial to you. For example, when it comes to variable annuities, you'll often hear the annuity salesman tell you that you can't lose any money because your principal is guaranteed. Well, that may be true, but likely what they're not telling you is that although your principal was guaranteed, your previously earned capital gains are not guaranteed. And although your losses may be capped, conversely, your earnings in any particular time period, like over a quarter or a particular month or a year, those earnings could also be capped. Now, there's nothing wrong or nefarious with that. Obviously, if the annuity company is going to protect your principal in a declining market, then they somehow have to make up and compensate for the payout that you're going to receive when the market goes up. Otherwise, the annuity company would never make any money. And we know they're not doing this as a charitable enterprise. They're doing it to earn a profit. I'll give you another example of a typical sales pitch, and this is something that I know happens all the time, and I was just recently talking to someone that said it's exactly the same sales pitch that they had recently received from an annuity salesman. Now, follow along with me on this. Here's the way the sales pitch goes. You have a guy, we're going to call him Fred. He's about to retire. He's white. He's 65 years old, and he has $500,000 in his retirement savings. The annuity salesman comes to him and says, Fred, I've got such a deal for you. I have an annuity that will pay you $30,000 for the rest of your life. Now, that's guaranteed, Fred, 
And if you've been paying attention, you know that in the low interest rate environment we're in, this is a far better guaranteed rate of return than you're going to receive anywhere. In fact, Fred, let's pull up some interest rates from a secure investment, like if you were to ladder CD, certificate of deposits at your bank or at your credit union, where you know that the principal was guaranteed. Well, let's look at the numbers, Fred. Well, at best, you're going to receive a 3% return on your $500,000, and Fred, that's only $15,000. And then he'll show Fred that if Fred purchases this annuity, he's going to receive $30,000 a year, and you can do the simple math. Well, that turns out to a 6% rate of return. And so, hey, Fred, this is a great deal. It's guaranteed for the rest of your life. Sign right here on the dotted line. Well, what the annuity salesman just told Fred was absolutely true, but it's what he didn't tell Fred that's important. And what he didn't tell Fred is that if Fred took his $500,000 and just took it down to the credit union or the bank, Fred could ladder his CDs and just receive that 3% rate of return. And although that 3% wouldn't pay the $30,000 that the annuity would, Fred could still withdraw from his own account the $30,000 and pay that to himself every year. Now you're going to say, well, he could do that, but he's only getting a 3% rate of return. That's only $15,000 when he starts. As he keeps withdrawing down his principal, Fred is going to eventually run out of money. And that's absolutely true. But do the math on it. If Fred has $500,000 and he's paying himself $30,000 a year, he's not going to run out of money for about 23 years. Now, remember, in our example, Fred is a 65-year-old white male. And so that means that he won't run out of money until he's 88 years old. The reason that's so important and the reason I stress the demographics of being a white male is that the actuarial tables say that Fred's life expectancy is only going to be about 80 or 81 years old. And so unless Fred is a real outlier from his overall demographic, Fred will die before he ever goes broke. And that's the key point to this discussion, that the annuity salesman doesn't bring up to Fred because the annuity company knows that Fred's probably going to die at 80 or 81 years old. That's why they're willing to pay him $30,000 a year because the break-even point doesn't occur until Fred's 88 years old. That's how the insurance or the annuity company makes their profits. Now, again, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing nefarious with this. But Fred should know that if he buys that annuity under those conditions, he really needs to live beyond 88 years old just to break even. And if Fred knew that, he may be less willing to hand over the control of his half a million dollars to an insurance company, and he may decide to manage that money himself or hire another professional to do it for him. So that's the kind of problem that I have with annuities. It's not that the investment opportunities in and of themselves are bad. It's just that in most cases, they're being sold with high-pressure sales tactics that gloss over on the cons or the negative parts of the annuities. Well, hey, Mike, thanks for your question. For the Expert Council, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. So also, as I alluded to in my introduction, it may make sense that someone might also take a hybrid approach with an annuity. If an annuity did indeed make sense for somebody, maybe they wouldn't put all of their retirement into it, but they might take a portion thereof. And, you know, John was going with the most conservative investment as possible um, with laddered CDs. It isn't like you need to take 100% of your uh, retirement 
in a completely risk-free return environment, you can take a portion thereof and everything you do offsets that. Um, and it's also not like retirement means there's no in other income as well. Um, so you really need a more holistic look at things, not do I or do I not use an annuity. In general, I don't like them. I don't like them. They, they, they don't. I, if they if they made a lot of, if you would always win by taking an annuity they wouldn't be a thing right they're betting on you dying is what they're betting they're betting on one their other investments do better than what they have to pay you over the duration averaged out among thousands and thousands and thousands of people that they have as clients for this particular annuity And that a lot of you will die before you ever even get the full value. And there are other types of things. There's, there's annuities that have a death benefit locked into them, etc. There's all different types of things. Uh, and they're not all bad. But you, you shouldn't pick one just because you, you because it sounds nice. And what, what the people that are opponents to the SECURE Act are actually saying, not the ones that are freaking out and telling you they're, they're stealing your 401k. Because that's the argument being made. That's what one person in particular was losing her shit about. That they're basically it's the way for the government to steal your 401k. No. Adding an option to 401k is not stealing it from anybody. What, what people are concerned with is it'll sound so good that a bunch of lazy-ass people that don't even know to get their damn money out of the 401k into an IRA so they have more options will just click that button at retirement. And to be fair, that is what the insurance companies that are lobbying very heavily to get this done are hoping for. They want a huge influx of new clients that are point-click-and-receive types in these annuities. Because the more they get, the better it is for them. And it's, it's not like you would think. You, would, you think it's because, well, obviously everyone makes... Not every client for an annuity, makes an insurance company money. The, the client that lives, you know, to be 105 or 109 might cost the money, but how many of them do? So the one reason that annuities have been traditionally so stable is that they're run across such a broad swath of humanity that enough people lose to make sure that the annuity, the, the, the insurance company issuing the annuity wins. So, and a lot of times they're blended with life insurance and, and other things too. All right. So next up, I have a question for me on buying a new house. I'm going to read the question, and I'm going to tell you why the question itself and all of the specifics of it don't really matter in the way that I'm going to answer it. So, so here's the question. Comes in from Jesse. Jesse says, "Hi Jack, what are you, what is your prediction on the housing market in the next year or so? Is it a terrible time to buy?" Background: I'm planning to move my family to Boise from Seattle in the next few months for a number of reasons. Half the crime rate, family-friendly, affordable housing, even though Bo's, uh, Boise uh, home prices have been uh, risen a lot in the past few years, you can still buy new houses for 250 to 300K. Cost of living is lower and more freedom, such as gun laws. Thanks. Jesse, that's all good reasons to move to Boise. None of those are good reasons to buy a house or not buy a house. And what I think the housing market's going to do in the future has nothing to do with whether you should buy a house or not. First of all, we have to understand that the housing market is not a thing akin to the stock market. So if the stock market goes down, there's probably still some stocks that are up and stuff like that. But pretty much for the average investor, 
they're down too. And if the stock market goes up, the average investor is up, especially everybody sitting in 401ks, IRAs, that's invested into mutual funds, especially indexed mutual funds. And that is how people think of the stock market. Again, there are reasons maybe you shouldn't think that way, but for the average person, it's actually pretty accurate. If you turn on CNN and the market's up 4%, uh, and you're in a well-diversified, which means probably not diversified 401k, your 401k is probably up today. And if it's down 4%, your 401k is probably down today. And if you're in Florida, it's the same as if you're in Washington. It's the same as if you're in uh, Texas. the same as if you're in California or Arizona. The housing market doesn't work that way at all. And just because one housing market has been doing really well, like Boise apparently looks like it's done fairly well, if you're, if you're telling me a median home price is $250,000, in Boise, I feel like it must be doing very well. Just because we go into a recession doesn't mean that Boise pricing drops. And just because we stay pretty stable doesn't mean that Boise's housing market doesn't drop. It doesn't work that way. When the real estate market crashed and burned, there was some softening here in Texas, but the softening was mostly... There was some surplus inventory because builders hadn't stopped building houses yet. And once the new build stopped and the existing inventory dried up, the market barely missed a beat. And if you were in South Florida, a lot of the coastal properties that had been selling for a big premium took a big hit and they were hard to get rid of. But if you were living in Florida and you lived in either uh, coastal properties that were not really heavily marketed to the tourist investor, it wasn't so bad. And if you lived in normal, everyday, work-a-day housing in Florida, the supposed real estate crisis in Florida barely affected you at all. And even if you had the overpriced coastal property, if you had the ability to afford it, it was Florida real estate, and unless the entire country went into a, a never-ending death spiral economic collapse, you knew it was going to come back, so you didn't care. And that's the most important thing to understand with real estate. No matter how many real estate cycles we've had where real estate's crashed, it is always eventually, I'm going to say it again, eventually, because eventually it can be two years or five or eight, eventually rebounded and surpassed its prior pricing. Because in general, the population grows and people need new housing. So when we buy real estate, and we make the decision to go from renter to buyer, we need to have a long timeline viewpoint. And it needs to be about us and whether or not we're going to want to stay in a property long term, or at least that we think we will. If you know that you're only going to be living in a place for two years, I would have a hard, I'm not saying you always shouldn't buy. Sometimes there's really great opportunities to flip a house. You know, this is where we're looking for the one that needs a little bit more than tender, loving care. But it's livable, and it could be a project house we can get for a song, and we're better off doing that and taking advantage of, the, of the, the equity gain that if we do it right, we can get equity gain even in a down market. okay? Or if nothing else, even if we're break-even, we can have that now be a rental property when we move out of it. There's a lot of options there. But in general, for a home buyer, I'm looking for someone that pretty much feels I'm putting down roots. I got a five-year or longer plan. Number two, what I'm looking for is I don't have to go rating anything that wasn't designed to do this 
to get it done. I don't have to go in, cash in, you know, 10 grand out of my retirement account to buy a house. I'm not going to say that maybe sometimes that's not a good plan. Um, but if you're, if you're rating your retirement and you're not well ahead of your goals, then you really probably aren't ready to buy a house. Um, I think the other thing a person should have done before they bought a house is gone on a saving spree. We always talk about spending sprees. I think a saving spree works like this. You think you know what your budget is, so you figure out what a house payment's going to be. Then you add some money to it because living in a house is more expensive, say 10% over that. And if you're currently renting out, maybe living in Seattle, you can't do this, okay? But it, for most people, you're in a rental, and you're going you're gonna to end up paying more for the house. Whatever that difference is, that should be part of your savings spree. And you should do that for about six months. And if you can't save that differential over a six-month period, that means you can't make the payments and maintain your budget buying that house. So you need to figure out how you can do that before you step into this commitment. It's not like buying a pair of pants. You know, it's not like I didn't like it, so I just give it. I remember when, when I started this show, we were right in the middle of the big housing crisis. And people were saying, well, I just gave it back to the bank. You can't give a house back to the bank. It doesn't work that way. You didn't buy it from the bank. You bought it from the seller who's gone off somewhere else now. The bank didn't sell you the house. They lent you the money. You're destroying your credit. They're taking the house to try to recover their loss. That's what's happening in that situation. So that needs to be the case that you know you can service the debt. Additionally, you should have enough savings that you can service the debt and pay your basic bills for a minimum of 90 days without a job. And if you even want to factor whatever crap unemployment you're going to get into that, that's fine. But minimum three months without destroying your life. I don't mean that, well, I could cash my 401k in. and I mean that the money you have set aside, plus smart financial management during that period, plus whatever supplemental income you can come up with, can make your life not drastically change for 90 days. That's when you're ready to step in and buy a house. On top of that, then you have to do what I've talked and done many shows about. You have to buy smart. When people say, well, you can get a house for $250,000 to $300,000 in Boise, what do they mean? Because I find a lot of times people say, well, you'll never find a house for what your budget is. I mean, everybody, and bullshit. And I end up buying a house that's as nice or nicer than what they think you, you can get for more money. I think that it really makes sense to be flexible with geography. And maybe it's not in Boise, maybe it's outside of Boise, things like that, and being strategic, because you can always drive a little further to work, but you can't move your house. And I think you have to look really, really hard at things like the property tax footprint that you're creating for yourself and things like that, especially with the salt limits that no longer make all of that 100% deductible. You are still better off for most people under the Trump tax cuts than you were before them, unless you live in some stupid high-tax state from which you should move away, which is what it sounds like you're doing there, Jesse. Um, but unless you live in some stupid high-tax state, you're better off in the big picture. But now it also it still doesn't factor into your decision anymore. So it used to be, well, I'm going to pay $5,000 in property tax, but I get a deduction for that. 
Well, now you don't. You get the deduction anyway by the doubling of the standard deduction. So you need to be buying smart. You need to be in a position where you can negotiate from a position of strength, find the property that is a deal for the market that you're in, be able to go in and make the down payment and get the financing without raiding your retirement. And once you buy, you be, need to be able to still meet your, both your investing and your savings goals. Until you get yourself into that position, you're probably not ready to buy a house. People do it before that, and it ends up working out for them. So I'm not going to say that you can't. I'm giving you my opinion of when you're ready. And because there's just as many people that do it and jump the gun that get, that get by with it, get hurt with it. And that's how people get hurt, is that they think they buy because, well, everybody knows you're better off buying. Well, every when everybody knows something, everybody's usually wrong. You're... Many situations you have an advantage to buying over renting, but not every situation. Rent, I mean, if you end up having to walk a lease, it's a ding on your credit, sure. You usually can come to some amicable agreement with a landlord, though. When you have to leave a house, if you can't sell that house for at least what you owe on it relatively quickly, I'm talking. 60 days from the time you realize you have to, to close, you've got a problem that can stick with you for seven years or more. And it can change your life drastically for the worse. And if everybody went into house buying with that mindset, the real estate market would not be as hot as it is. Property values would come down. And it would take longer for most people to buy their first house. But the other thing that would happen is because people would be more prepared and they would see buying as a decision of where I want to live long term instead of it's just better than renting. Most people, when they moved into a house, would have an average duration, you know, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 years. Or I think the average duration in a home in America today is something like seven, seven and a half. And there's a whole lot of threes and fours in there that drag that number down to seven and a half. Because buyers tend to bifurcate into really short-term buyers and really long-term buyers. But there's a big split. There's a fairly even split in that right now. That's what drags that number down by the law of averages. Our grandparents didn't get into these troubles. And the reason they didn't get into these troubles is they looked at buying a house as becoming a homeowner in the true sense. That this was the place they wanted to be. They, they never used the term starter home. They might have said, this is a good home to start in. This is a good home to start a family in. And what they meant is, if the home no longer meets our needs, we'll make the home bigger. We'll adapt. Now we look at it and say, well, this one will be okay for a few years. Then get less than you want. Rent as cheap as you can and stockpile the money, and you'll probably come out ahead. If you don't come out ahead, you won't come out that far behind. But if the market tanks during that time frame, you'll come out way ahead, and you won't lose. And that's how you'll be ahead. So it's more of a philosophy of when you're ready as a buyer than when the market's ready for you. Because no matter how hot a market is, I've always found that by being a little bit flexible with the exact zip code you're in, 
there's always deals. There's always, always, always deals. And there's deals in some places you shouldn't buy to, right? Like there are some bad parts of town that some real estate agent, you say, it's up and coming and beat. No, 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 no. No, move out, not in, okay? I'm just saying, like, that's that's a big roll of the dice there, that this 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 neighborhood right now that every other house has a busted window is going to be the next up-and-coming neighborhood. It happens, but it also doesn't happen a lot, too. So um, that, that's the best I can do for you in, in a complex question like this. The overriding question, what do I think the housing market is going to do in the next three to five years? I think it's going to continue to improve. I think it's going to continue, houses are going to continue to get more expensive, and that the next housing bust is probably going to come from a point where the market goes so high that people can't afford to buy anymore. And when people can't afford to buy anymore, that's going to pull the market back. But I think we're quite a few years out from that yet. You know, if, you, if, you, if that scares you, maybe you're not ready to buy. I'm just saying. All right, with that, we've wrapped up another show. Hope you guys did enjoy today's episode. If you did, remember, you can always support the show by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. It's a great deal because it's like one of the few things in the world that you can buy that you know you can get your money back on it. If you listen to this show, and if you do the types of things we talk about, you're spending money every year on things like everything from seeds to tactical stuff to stuff for your guns, ammunition, right? I mean, you're spending money on stuff, or you wouldn't work for a living. If you simply log into your account once every two or three weeks and remind yourself of all the companies that are in there, go to the benefits section and look at it, and say, hey, next time I buy X, I'm going to check with Y. And whenever it makes sense, you make that purchase and you get that discount. When you sit down at the end of the year and add them up, you're going to go, gee, that was, a, that was $50 well spent because I got $80 or $100. One guy wrote me and said that he's getting over $500 a year in discounts. $500 on a $50 membership. I don't think that dude's ever leaving as a customer. Unfortunately for me, he got into one of the lifetime membership sales, but you see what I'm saying? Like 50 bucks a year is a deal on MSB, and I do keep making it better, and it comes out supporting the show at less than 20 cents an episode. Next up, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. All you do is when you're going to buy something online, maybe not from one of our vendors, you can just buy on you know, Amazon.com. You go there first, you check stuff out, and if you start there, you help us no matter what you eventually buy. What I do, though, is I take products that I really use in my own life. I review them, I tell you why I think they're great, and you can buy them through my links there. And you can see everything I've ever reviewed alphabetized uh, and listed by category. And if it's there, I own it, I bought it, I spent my money on it, and I would buy it again. If I wouldn't buy it again, I will not put it there for review. Today's product is something I've been using for years. It is the Gerber Dime Multi-Tool. This is a little multi-tool. uses pliers. Uh, it's got a knife blade in a little set of scissors, screwdriver blade, retail package opener, a bottle opener. I love this little tool. I love this little tool. I can't tell you how often it comes in handy that I have it on me. Since it's so small, it fits on my keychain. It's always available. Um, it is awesome. It is not a substitute for a full-size multi-tool, but it does... 70% of what a full-time multi-tool will do. I will tell you, I did find the limits on the pliers. Um, 
taking a, a CATV fitting off the back of a router when I got a new router from uh, Comcast. Uh, I don't know what the hell the guy that put it on there used to put it on, like a pipe wrench or something, but, I mean, it would not turn. And I was laying on my side under my desk, and I didn't feel like getting up, and I knew better. And I thought, well, let's see what this thing can do. So I cinched down on I was trying to break somebody's hand, and I did manage to blow the spring out of the pliers. So the pliers, you can do that to them, and I want to be you know upfront about that since I did it. And that's how I test gear for you guys. But I abused it. Like anything you need to squeeze that hard, it's a little tool, right? It really is not the appropriate tool. But they do work really great, and they even have wire cutters on those those needle nodes. So I think that this is a tool that you should ever have it or a competitor to it on your keychain. I think everybody should. As far as you know, multi-tools as a whole, if you read the article, um, I mentioned the uh, Leatherman Wave, which is a full-size tool. That's probably my favorite full-size multi-tool out of all of them. But, you know, it is a full-size tool, and I don't always have it. But anywhere I go, I have my vehicle, so I have my keys. So I have my Gerber Dine. Check it out. For 20 bucks. it's a hell of a deal. And uh, if you check out today's review, you can even see my EDC keychain. All right, with that, we have wrapped up another episode, and we have come to the end of another week. It is Friday, and it's time to leave with something that's a little bit rocking on our song of the day. And we have... We're finishing up Charlie Daniels Week, Charlie Daniels Man Week. We have a song today called In America. And I remember the first time I heard this song, it was at Metropolitan Park at a concert in Jacksonville, Florida. One of the rare things like that that my father actually went to. Uh, my dad wasn't big on doing stuff like that. He pretty much most years, I would say he worked 363 days a year. He took off Christmas Day and New Year's Eve. Those were his two days he took, or New Year's Day. Christmas, Christmas Day and New Year's Day he took off. Uh, and many years he only worked half a day on New Year's Day, so he only took half a day off. So he worked 364 and a half days a year. Uh, but one way or another, we did get him to go to this concert because he liked Charlie Daniels. And I, as much as I liked Charlie, I'd never actually, I don't, as far as I can remember being a little kid, I don't think I'd heard this song yet. This song came out of something I remember well for as so young as I was when it was going on, the Iranian hostage crisis. And the whole point of this song is that when America's t attacked is when it becomes united. And you never did think that it ever would happen again is one of the lines in the song. But it damn sure did. And America was pretty united by this crisis. Like no matter who you supported for president or what your politics were, you wanted the hostages to come home. I remember sitting as a little kid watching airplane land and the hostages finally get off the plane and I remember there was a guy in, in, in like the audience waiting and he started clapping over his head he started singing Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen which a bunch of people then followed suit with I thought it was really cool I didn't know what Born in the USA was all about and I don't think the guy singing it really did either and it kind of counterbalances the danger of the mindset that's in a song like this. Don't get me wrong, I like it. And there was something. You know, our modern equivalent was 9-11, and it was a much bigger thing. But September 12, 2001, the country was incredibly united. And there were some really great things about that. But look what it led to. Look what it led to. The Patriot Act, the Freedom Act, 
which is the Non-Patriot and the Unfreedom Act, right? Um, it led to some of the greatest growth in government and the greatest additions to the oppression of American people. It, it led to the fact that the government can now look inside your safe deposit box as though the 9-11 terrorists kept their razor knives in safe deposit boxes or something. And this is, this is the danger of being united due to a feeling of fear. There's a great positive in it. Because that's how, that's how you defeat an enemy determined to destroy you. But when I look at threats to my freedom, my wife and I were talking about this last night. And you show me a picture of some guy in Afghanistan, and you show me a picture of the, of the, of the Congress. I'm going to tell you right now, I, I fear for my freedom from the Congress more than I do from some guy in Afghanistan that couldn't find me if he wanted to and probably couldn't tell you where America is on a map. And our government will never fail to take advantage of that. In the words of Rahm Emanuel, they will not let a good crisis go to waste. And it's a very difficult thing to become more nuanced as we aged. And we want to listen to a song like this with such fervor and realize the other side. It's a difficult place to be for a person that truly loves the ideals this country was founded on but no longer can swear an allegiance to the state itself. Still a badass song, and still a great song for a Friday. With that, Ben Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Joe 